I am uh, going to start out uh, a little bit different this morning with uh, a Wordle. How many of you are into Wordle? You're into that. Okay, good. Now, um, Wordle is a, a, like an interesting thing. This will be a little bit different than you normally would do for an official Wordle. I, it came to my attention this week that uh, last week when I used a laser pointer, which is the first time, maybe second time I've used a laser pointer in 14 years, came to my attention that someone in the community mocked me <laughs> for using a laser pointer. Now, I don't want to call out anyone by name. I wouldn't do that. But I thought we'd play a little Wordle. And I, I supplied the first word for the Wordle, and then you kind of have to figure it out. I'll use the laser pointer to explain. Um, the H is in the appropriate place. The A is also in the appropriate place. The N is too. The D doesn't belong because it's not in the word. And then the S is in the appropriate place. Now, you'll have to figure out the wordle. But I will say on a completely separate note, Young Life has a fundraiser coming up soon. And I'm sure Hans and anyone else on staff would love to talk to you about the fundraiser, how you might get a seat at the table, you might be able to contribute. That is our wordle for the day. Thank you for playing, okay? I will set the laser pointer down. Uh, we are in this series on Revelation. And um, just as a reminder, we're on the last church of the seven to be described to us in the book of Revelation. We will carry on this series for two more weeks, and you'll understand why over the next two weeks. But what we are attempting to do, as we've talked about this, is to sit as a community, as a church, under the teaching of the word and hear the Spirit speak to us in our context what the Spirit may have said back then. Um, and there's a little phrase that we've brought up again and again. It's this phrase, he who has a hear, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an invitation for all of us to listen to what the Spirit said to the church then and to ask the question, what might the Spirit be saying to us today? And so this morning, we're going to cover a couple sections of this letter to the church of Laodicea, and I'm going to create an opportunity for us to pause after each section to listen to what the Spirit might be saying to you individually and what the Spirit might be saying to us corporately. And we'll allow the Spirit to speak into that moment with you. And uh, we may even have a couple times where we dialogue out loud for a moment, just to give some prompting to what we might be hearing. Um, so that's kind of the format for this morning. Let me pray and just ask the Spirit to speak to us during this time, and then we'll look at Revelation 3. God, we ask that the Holy Spirit would move in each of us in intentional ways, that we might be attentive, that we might have ears to hear, that we might listen and obey and follow what it is you might want to communicate to us this morning. I pray that we would individually as well as corporately hear from you. 
and that you might encourage us, as you did the church back then, to continue to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can uh, look on the screen or in your Bibles. We are in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, describing who Jesus is. Then he says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to take this section, break it down into three parts, and uh, hopefully listen a little bit to the Spirit. He starts off saying, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He just keeps bringing up this illustration and I know that this was probably one of my least favorite passages growing up. I would hear this and be like, oh, that's horrible. It sounds disgusting. I don't like it. And I've come to figure out over time that it's often a huge case study in missing the point. Now, when we think about this particular section of the passage, we usually think of an image something like this, if you were to visually consider it. I think we have an image. Bingo. So you have the Trinity. You have someone who's really close to the Trinity would be on fire or hot or warm or that kind of idea. They're close to God. Then you have ice cold on the other end of the spectrum. And then somewhere in the middle is lukewarm. And usually what we do is we put our frame of reference, our idea of what it means to be hot and cold onto the passage, and we think about it from that lens, and then we think to ourselves, okay, hot is good, so therefore that person must be close to God. Cold looks bad. That person seems far from God, so that makes a lot of sense. It also makes a lot of sense when we consider our language, right? So if someone catches a cold, that's usually a bad thing, or we consider it not great, so that makes sense, really far from the ideal. Or if we say someone uh, is really cold toward people, again, not a compliment, not something you'd want. So again, that makes a lot of sense. If we say someone is um, on fire for Jesus, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. They're very close to God. If we say that someone's fit is on fire, it's a compliment, right? That's what you would encourage someone with. Um, If a basketball player is on fire, again, 
These are all good things. So it makes a lot of sense for us to look at that. And then this is where the twist comes. If I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't know that I would say I'm on fire for God. It just doesn't feel like the way we describe that. Maybe I'm not right in that place right now. But I know I'm definitely not cold toward God. So I'm probably in that middle. And then I read the passage and I'm like, well, it says that God hates it if you're lukewarm. That he wants to spit you and myself that are lukewarm out of his mouth. Which kind of implies that if God hates lukewarm, then God hates me. And that's kind of our visual representation of this passage. And so I've obviously always hated it because I never consider myself on fire for God. But I also don't consider myself cold toward God. So then it's like, well, I guess God just hates me and would rather vomit me out. So if that's the case, I might as well become cold toward God because it's a lot less effort than trying to be hot for God. So I'll just like not care anymore about God and he'll be more in favor of that than if I was lukewarm. That's kind of like the way we visually and kind of speak about the particular passage. But in order to really understand what's trying to be communicated to this church, you have to understand a little bit about the city and a little bit about the geography. So this city, amazing city, Cutting edge, cosmopolitan, highly commercial, it's a wealthy city, huge stadium, lavish public baths, um, fabulous shopping centers. I mean, I know that some of you are thinking, oh, I think he's describing Spokane, but no, um, I'm describing Laodicea. That was what it was like back then. And uh, cutting edge city, and specifically known for three things it was known for its wealth. So it was the center of banking in the whole region. It was known for its wool. So it had um, textile garments, fashion. It was very well known for that. And then known for medicine. Specifically, medicine that had to do with the eyes or the vision of people. And helping people to have good vision. So that's a little bit about the city. But there's one thing that the city lacked above everything else. And that was water. They were not in a region that really facilitated them having good water. And so, there was two cities nearby. Heropolis, which was famous for its hot springs, had like the assumption that these hot springs had healing power. They were restorative. They were really healthy for people. And then you had Colossae, right, which we've heard of before. And that was known for refreshing ice-cold springs. So you have these two cities, not too, too far away, that had like the best of the best for the cold water and the hot water. And in order to tap into the best, because Laodicea was rich and wealthy, and they developed an aqueduct system to draw water from both of these cities to them. And so they created this like lengthy, about seven miles aqueduct system to funnel the ice cold water from one location to them and the very like hot healing water of another city to them. And the problem though was the distance. The problem was the weather. The problem was this water was coming through a limestone aqueduct that had 
climate. It had dirt. It had animals coming to drink from it. It had contaminants from the area. And by the time it got to Laodicea, if you were to tap into that water and take a big swig, you'd be like, this is the grossest water ever. It's dirty. The very hot, hot water had become lukewarm. Very, very cold water had become tepid and not interesting and basically useless. So they had everything they needed but water, and they dried everything they could to make it better, and it wasn't useful. And so what Jesus is saying is that water that you're tasting every day of the week, it makes you gag. It makes you not feel good. You kind of want to spit it back out. That's how I feel too. But he's not saying that's how I feel about your being on fire or cold for me. What he's saying, in essence, is you've lost your usefulness. Water would be very useful if it was ice cold. It'd be very useful if it was warm and healing, but it's neither, and so it's useless. It's not helpful. It's not helping anyone in the city. And that's what he's communicating. And so I want to pause and give us a moment to listen to what the Spirit might say to us as a church into us as people. When you think about the church, what does it mean for the church to be useful? So we believe that the church, if you look here, should always be reformed or always be in need of reform. Nobody thinks new community is perfect. Nobody thinks any other church in town is perfect. We're not. We're always in need of reform. But the question is, what does it really mean for a church to be useful? individually and corporately, what does it mean? And what I want you to do is take a moment to think about it, but just to get your wheels turning a little bit, toss out an idea or two just for the group to hear as a whole. And remember, say it loud enough that I can maybe hear it through the muffled mask, okay? Um, But toss out an idea. What does it mean for the church to be useful? We really need the Spirit to speak to us on this one, it sounds like. Anyone. Charity, okay? What else? Service, message of grace, social justice. Any others come to mind? Yeah, loving all people. Being a place that lives out and exhibits what it means to bring the shalom or the peace of God to rest on a city. Okay, take those ideas, take a moment, I'll give you about 30 seconds or so to write down what does it mean for the church to be useful, and then we're going to kind of personalize it a little bit. Okay, 30 seconds, go. All right, let's personalize it for a moment. In what way or ways are you contributing to the usefulness of the body of Christ? If what the Spirit is saying to the collective church, we got to be reminded we are the church, right? It's not just an organization. More importantly, it's you, it's me, it's us, it's collective. And then we've agreed to kind of be within this group of people. So he, Jesus, is speaking to the church and saying, you personally, individually, and corporately have lost usefulness. So what does it mean for you to contribute to the usefulness of the body of Christ? And before you pause to think about it for a moment and jot something down while listening to the Spirit, let me suggest this. 
It does not just mean volunteering for kids, helping out with slides, setting up stuff before the service. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about more is what are the ways that you're uniquely gifted? What makes you come alive? What are the gifts and abilities and talents and interests that you can offer to others? What are the things that burn within you related to justice and care and charity and love? A lot of the things we've just talked about that would affect this city, this community, this neighborhood, this block, those kind of things. And also, how do, does your usefulness relate to other people within the community. So just the other day, talking to someone who was interacting with someone else within the community that said, I didn't really want to be here on Sunday, and it just didn't, I didn't feel like it. But when I got here, I connected to someone, and what happened when we hung out later in the week was so meaningful and impactful. That's what the church looks like. That's what it means to be useful, right? So think about that for a moment. I'll give you about 30 seconds to a minute to ask the question, Spirit, what does it mean for me to be useful within the body of Christ? The writer John gives us a second word picture to think about. So we're thinking about that first picture. Second picture, he says this. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then goes on to counsel them to buy from him gold refined by fire. Now, what he's describing here is the picture of the difference between reality and assumption, between self-confidence and true assessment. Now, you may have heard this before, but in 1989, there was a study done between six nations. Those six nations had youth tested in the category of math. And what they did is they brought these nations together, gave a bunch of youth around the same ages the exact same test, and uh, basically testing their ability in, uh, in math or proficiency. Now, of all of those six nations, American students ranked lowest in mathematical competence, and the Korean students ranked highest in competence. But the researchers also asked one final question after all of the like math had been completed. They asked, how did you feel about the test, etc.? How do you think you did, and how good are you at math? Yes, you know where this is going. The Americans ranked highest in self-judged mathematical ability, while the Koreans ranked lowest. So even if the Americans were terrible at math, they felt like they were the best. That is a stark reality. But here's the truth. That's what Laodicea is equally doing. Laodicea says, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And Jesus' assessment is not that. It's the opposite. In fact, what's uh, fascinating is the fact that we often do the same thing. Eric Hoffer makes this statement, we lie loudest when we lie to ourselves. See, the Laodiceans were described in three ways. The first is that they're poor. 
And the Laodiceans would go, no, 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 we're not poor. We're the center of banking. We're incredibly wealthy. I don't know what you're talking about. It was also stated that you're blind. No, no, no. We have the, in the whole region, the best care for anyone for vision and eye care. We're not blind. We've got that figured out. You're naked. No, no, no. no. We're the garment-making capital of the whole region. All the things that you're saying to us aren't true because we know we are these things. Major difference. I've read this quote before. It might be familiar to you. Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. See, into all of this, what Jesus is doing is he's exposing the nakedness of self-deception. That we often find ourselves lying to ourselves. So here's a quick question for reflection, and I'll get a couple ideas from you. How do we avoid lying to ourselves? If someone asks you that question, how do you avoid lying to yourself? What advice would you give? What would you suggest as a way to avoid that? Community, absolutely. Accountability, excellent. Yeah, asking for feedback, intentionally getting some response. Any others come to mind? Listening, very good. Therapy, absolutely. Yeah, and I would even add practicing intentional humility to intentionally lean into that, and you can. So think about it. I'll give you about 30 seconds or so. What are some ways that you can avoid lying to yourself? Take a moment to listen to the Spirit. And maybe even listen, is there an area in which... Now, Jesus challenges the church and he says to them, I counsel you or my advice to you is buy from me. Now, buy is that idea of to acquire or to gain something that was lacking. What Jesus is challenging them with is find your sufficiency in me. Find your adequacy in me. Don't go looking for it in banking. Don't go looking for it in, you know, in money or clothes or fame or vision or any of those other things that you think you're more than capable of. Look for your adequacy and sufficiency in me. We talked a little bit about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. The main thing that I reminded you of is the fact that when we feel desperate, when we feel needy, when we feel like we truly um, do not have what's necessary to gain the approval of God or of others or whatever, that is actually not bad news. That's really good news. Because that good news reminds us that when we don't measure up, it's okay because Christ measured up for us. That he is the sufficiency that we need. So I want to give you a moment to listen to the Spirit in this area as well. Here's a couple questions. Where in your life do you currently feel weak, inadequate, or exposed what is the Spirit saying to you about those feelings? And in what ways have you been de depending on your own sufficiency rather than on the work of Christ? And what could you do to depend on that?
Take 30 seconds or so and consider what the Spirit might say to you about this. John gives us one final picture with this sentence. Behold, I, being Jesus, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is a pretty, um, it's difficult when you think about it. It's a picture of Jesus standing outside, kind of knocking on the door, hoping to get in, and nobody's letting him in. The door's not open. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you find yourself locked out of a building, you maybe exited and realize you went the wrong way, and you try to get back in, and doesn't matter how hard you bang, you have no one to call, you're kind of stuck. Many of us have probably been there. I've felt that feeling before, but it's weird to think about it as it relates to Jesus. That Jesus is on the outside requesting entry and is not receiving it. Now, again, when we hear this, and part of the way the language is written here in the English makes us think that what it's really saying is Jesus is knocking on, you've probably even heard, the door to my heart, and that if I open that door, then he'll come in, and then we'll have dinner together, right? Like, we'll hang out, there'll be connection. And there is some truth to that. I'm not suggesting that there isn't an invitation that all of us have to embrace connecting with the Spirit and speaking to God. But what is really true of this passage is it's written to the people, the collective community of Laodicea. So if we're to put it in our context, it's not basically saying to you individually, have you opened your individual heart to Jesus because he's outside wanting to get in? Rather, it's saying, you're all here meeting. You've gathered. And the purpose of your gathering is to remember who Jesus is, to remind yourself of Jesus' love, to listen to his voice. And the problem is Jesus is at the front door and he's knocking and you haven't let him in. You've figured it out on your own. You've arrived. You figured out what it means to be the church. You figured out what you're supposed to do. You've depended on your own self-adequacy. And in fact, if you look at all the things he's already communicated to the church, he's basically saying, You've relied on your own pride and self-sufficiency, thinking you could do it on your own, and what do I have to offer? Also, you've given up on your usefulness. I've described you as lukewarm. You're not useful to the cause. You're still gathering, but I'm out there because I want you to be useful, and you collectively are not. Another way to look at it is Jesus often throughout the New Testament, is described as being the person that's outside. Meaning, when we hear in Matthew that uh, Jesus says, I was poor, I was naked, I was in prison, I was, and you fed me, you visited me, you clothed me. And then the response is, when did we do that? We've never. And he goes, no, no, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. That I am in exchange with that person When you treat that outsider in that way, you've invited me. You've cared for me. Very similar in terms of justice. We brought that up before. If anyone is standing outside, Jesus is with them, and he's waiting for the invitation in. So whether this church was prideful and self-sufficient or in a place where they were useless, 
and not being used, or they were excluding for the sake of whatever reason, right? What Jesus is speaking into is, I'm on the outside, and I desperately want to be in. I want to be in the midst of you and in this space. So I want us to pause and think about that for a moment. Here are a couple questions to help you with that. Why is Jesus on the outside looking in? What areas of your life do you need to open the door to Jesus instead of relying on your own self-sufficiency? So looking at it individually. But then corporately, how will you, your group, your family, your friends, this church, welcome in the outsider? Take a moment and think through those, and then we'll close in prayer. Spirit, you have said to us, he or she that has ears, let it or her hear what the Spirit might say to the church. We are your church. We are your children. We ask that you would enable us to continue to hear from you this week. That these questions that we have prompted, that we've invited you into, that you might continue to remind us of or speak into. May we continue to hear from you. May you say something to us that's very clear. And may we be willing to follow that. And God, like the church of Laodicea, may we find usefulness. May we be, for this city, an outpost of the kingdom, an opportunity to spread shalom. And may in our individual lives, the way we greet the outsider, the way we interact with all people, may there be a visible demonstration of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.